welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts for today, Karen and Kathy. Today we are discussing episode fifty-eight of the story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gonglue. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter, or else email us at Karen and Kathy at ChasingDramas dot com. Today's episode is going to be light on the plot recap and very heavy on the history, so buckle up. In the last few episodes, the Empress Dowager was embroiled in a whole saga where it was revealed that she was not the emperor's birth mother. His mother was actually a Madame Tian, who was killed most likely by the late Emperor Yongzheng. It was a whole thing, but right now the Empress Dowager has jetted off—not jetted off, carriaged off—to <laughs> Yuanmingyuan or the old Summer Palace. To provide some distance between her and the emperor, especially since she feigned sickness in order for her to tug at the emperor's heartstrings, because Wei Yingluo tried her hardest to help the Empress Dowager, the Empress Dowager decides to bring Yingluo along to help her get back into the emperor's good graces. If you'll recall, the emperor and Yingluo are currently at a very um. Difficult time in their relationship because he found out that Yingluo was taking a contraceptive tonic. So now we have it that the Empress Dowager and Yingluo are in Yuanmingyuan, while the Emperor and Empress remain in the Forbidden Palace. The Empress Nala is relishing in this turn of events because now the palace is her empire. There is no one in the palace left to oppose her. But that doesn't mean Yingluo and the Empress Dowager aren't also enjoying their time in Yuanmingyuan. I honestly feel like Yingluo decided to take like a long sabbatical and was like, "Great, I'm gonna enjoy my time with my mother-in-law." <laughs> in monthly letters to the Emperor, Yingluo writes of all the fun activities she does with the Empress Dowager, which we will discuss more about later on in the podcast episode. They celebrate the Mid-Autumn Festival. Enjoy chrysanthemums for the double ninth festival and plenty others. These monthly letters are eagerly awaited by the emperor, who seems to have started to forgive Yingluo for her past betrayal. I personally love all the small interactions between the emperor and Li Yu. When they receive the letters, Li Yu knows the emperor so well, especially how to tease him with these letters. <laughs> We are now, according to the drama. In the twentieth year of Emperor Qianlong's reign, which makes it 1756, it's been three full years since Yingluo moved to Yuanmingyuan, and quite a bit has changed in the palace. Well, primarily that through a lot of plot exposition, the Empress Nala gave birth to two young sons, the twelfth and the thirteenth princes. Yuan Chunwang is now the lead eunuch in the palace, relishing in all of his power. One of his subordinates thought that Yuan Chunwang desired a pretty maid and had her brought to Yuan Chunwang's quarters. He ugh, basically physically abuses this poor girl and throws her out, but not before somehow still being an absolute creep because she reminded him of Yingluo. He's still talking all about love and betrayal against Wei Yingluo, and it's like, buddy, 
You betrayed her and basically had her thrown out of the Imperial uh, harem. What are you still talking about or thinking about? Plus, your obsession over Yingwul is just honestly way too creepy. Back to the Emperor. It does seem that the Emperor is anxious to hear that Yingwul is healthy, given that on the 36th monthly letter, she sent only the word an, which translates to essentially doing fine. And because it was only one word, this letter caused some worry for the Emperor. But before he could spend too much time thinking about her health, he receives the news that his military campaign against the Huolan tribe was victorious and their troops, so the Qing Dynasty troops, are on their way home. What that means is that Fu Hong, whom we haven't seen in many episodes, is finally back in the palace. And with him, the news of the victorious conquest also means a new threat for Ying Luo in the palace. Fu Hong visits Ying Luo in Yuan Ming Yuan, but instead of interrogating her about killing his wife, he urges her to return to the palace. Though I do find it absolutely hilarious that he totally just glosses over the fact that his wife is dead. <laughs> He's probably over the moon happy about that. Yeah, I don't know if the drama cut anything out for this, but Fu Hong had literally no facial expression whatsoever or no reaction whatsoever that his wife is dead. Side note, um, I thoroughly enjoy Mingyu and Hailan Cha's side conversation. They were so cute. He's all pouty when Mingyu tries to overhear Fu Hong and Wei Yinglo's conversation. And he's like, hey, what about me? I find all my time, spare time to come see you. And all you care about is two other people. What about me? <laughs> Anyways, Fu Hong brings news that over the past three months, a new woman in the palace who is essentially perfect has appeared. This woman is so wonderful that she has taken all of the emperor's attention. She is a serious threat to Yingwo's position in the emperor's heart and could mean that all of her plans the last few years will go to waste if she does not return to the palace immediately. The woman in question, the name, Chen Bi. With Fu Hong's words of warning, Yingluo, aka Ling Fei, immediately returns to Yan Xi Gong. How problematic is this woman? So problematic that the moment Yingluo returns, the Empress Nala summons her. The two left on rather poor footing, but right now, Empress Nala actually requests the two women work together in order to combat the new formidable foe. At first, Yingluo refused, but then went to take a single look at the new Chen Bi, aka Shun Pin, or concubine Shun, and we don't actually see her uh, in this scene, but Yingluo takes a look and immediately turns around and agrees to work with Empress Nala. Seems like Yingluo recognized just how beautiful and pure Shun Pin looked, which is indeed a threat to her position in the palace. That, and also, Yingluo is a little jealous that Xuanping now has the full attention of the emperor. We're going to end the episode recap here because we have tons of history to talk about. But in episode 59, we will finally get the chance to meet this mysterious and beautiful Chen Bi. I feel like we're just going to say Chen Bi a couple of times this episode recap, as well as for the history, because every single person from Fu Hong to the Empress are all like, Chen Bi is a very important name. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so there's a lot of history that is introduced in this episode and also historical events that are just thrown at us this episode, so let's spend some time to discuss them. First and foremost, Ling Fei was never banished to Yuanming Yuan, so her three-year-long stint there with the Empress Dowager is just here for dramatic purposes. In one of the letters that Wei Yingluo sends to the emperor, she mentions a book, Zhuo Zhongzhi, and specifically the volume Yin Shi Hao Shang Ji Lue. I'll use the YouTube translation, Discretionary Comrades, Diet is Good, History is Slightly. Uh, okay. I mean, I don't think it really is that translation, but we'll go with it. This was written by the eunuch Liu Ruoyu, who was born during the Ming Dynasty in 1584. He came from a powerful military family and hence was educated. He self-castrated at the age of 16 after a weird dream and then was sent to the palace in 1601. I don't know much about this weird dream of his, but I guess his life led to something greater, so maybe this is why he had this dream. As an educated eunuch, he had the privilege of serving at the emperor's study. During his time at the palace, he saw the political rise and fall of one of the most notorious eunuchs in all of Chinese history, Wei Zhongxian. Unfortunately for Liu Ruoyu, because he was a eunuch and served the emperor at the same time as Wei Zhongxian, court officials deemed him an accomplice and sentenced him to death. While in jail, Liu Ruoyu, unsatisfied with these false accusations, wrote Zhuo Zhongzhi to clear his name. In the book, he documented all that he had seen and experienced of Ming court life. This book, or the beginning of this book, did indeed clear his name as the emperor summoned him to discuss more and pardoned him. This book was first written in 1629 and completed in 1641. It is comprised of 24 volumes and details palace life from the reigns of Emperor Wanli to the early years of Emperor Chongzhen. This includes the daily lives of the emperor, women of the imperial harem, palace rules, palace staff, palace dining, and clothes, and many other topics. This information written here will never be found in what was viewed as quote-unquote proper history or zhengshi, but this is nevertheless an invaluable historical artifact. The volume that Wei Yingluo mentions, Yin Shi Hao Shang Ji Lue, details how cuisine was prepared in the palace at that time. I do find it interesting that in the drama there is this line of how did the Empress Dowager get her hands on this? Despite the book being a Ming text, it was very valuable even during the Qing Dynasty. Because this was a Ming text, though, revisions had to be made with regards to some dates and names. During the Qing Dynasty, and honestly with many of the dynasties, when there are conflicting date names, for example, in the Ming Dynasty, uh, towards the end of the Ming Dynasty, you would still say, okay, this was the Ming Dynasty year X. Um, but during that same time, the Qing Dynasty had already established itself. So in Qing texts, they would use Qing Dynasty year why? So these texts had to be revised, and this could possibly be what the emperor is mentioning with Li Yu during that scene. Moving on, so with reference to this book, at Yuan Ming Yuan, the Empress Dowager and Ying Luo 
celebrate a ton of holidays, including the Mid-Autumn Festival, which is observed on the 15th day of the 8th month of the year, the day in which the moon is the fullest for the entire year. The Mid-Autumn Festival is an important festival for the Chinese, as the fullest moon represents a time for family, a whole family, and to be thankful for the family. It has also been a long tradition to eat crab for this holiday. In China, the favorite crab is the da jia xie, or the Chinese mitten crab, or the Shanghai hairy crab. This species of crab is native to China and viewed as a delicacy. September through November, which is right around the time of the Mid-Autumn Festival each year, is typically the best time to get the largest and fattest crabs. By the Ming Dynasty, the aristocracy also enjoyed crab for the festival. Typically, the crab would be steamed and then enjoyed with some wine vinegar. In Chinese, xie, yu, xie, or crab, and thank you sound the same. For a holiday that represents togetherness, crab is also the perfect dish to represent the thankfulness of those around us. To this day in China, there is still a custom to make and gift crab during the mid-autumn festival. We at home do eat quite a bit of crab when I am at home with my family, both in the U.S. and in China. It's very much a treat. In the drama, we quickly move to 九月重阳节. This is the double ninth festival, which is observed on the ninth day of the ninth month in the Chinese calendar. Now, this holiday has been observed since time immemorial, popularized during the Han Dynasty and reaching its pinnacle after the Tang Dynasty. The reason for this holiday is due to the auspicious nature of the numbers. Nine is the largest single number, so a double nine day on the calendar makes it a very auspicious date. According to Yi Jing, a divination book, nine is also a yang number the largest of the yang, single yang numbers. With two nines on the date, this makes it double nine or double yang, hence why it's called chong yang. Chong also means double. Make sense? Double nine or double yang. For local customs, with these double nine dates, these also represent longevity, so this holiday also is a time to respect elders and wish them a long and healthy life. For the holiday, there's a ton of customs that also differ with each province. However, typically it is customary to climb a high mountain, enjoy the autumn views, pray to the elders, fly kites, eat the Chongyang cake, enjoy the chrysanthemum flowers, drink chrysanthemum liquor, and wear zhuyu, or plant corinus officinalis. These flowers are thought to have cleansing properties, which is why these flowers specifically are used. In the drama, we see yellow chrysanthemum flowers featured quite prominently in those scenes. Which brings us to this particular dish that Mingyu is preparing. Zhouguaqie, or the YouTube translation is wasted eggplant. This was a dish that was first recorded during the Song Dynasty and was then a Ming Dynasty palace dish. The instructions include... For each five caddies of eggplant, add five liang of salt. So that's around 2.5 kilos of eggplant and 250 grams of salt. That's a lot. <laughs> then mix with distiller's grain or zhao. Afterwards, add the copper money on top. 
After 10 days, retrieve the money and discard. Then change the distiller's green or zhao into another bottle. Afterwards, retrieve. The color should be green as new. These instructions seem very vague because it says, then move it into another bottle. And when I was reading this, we were doing the translations. I was like, when did you put it in another bottle? Like the original <laughs> bottle? Was there an original bottle? I don't know. And it doesn't even tell you like how you're supposed to stick the copper coins into the eggplant. But basically, you're supposed to do it as you see in the drama. However, what we don't see in the drama is the cell that is added on or the distiller's grain that is added on. So, it might seem kind of unsanitary with the whole put copper coins in the eggplant thing. And I honestly have no idea how this dish tastes because this is the first time I've seen this dish. But I think it might be more of a fermenting process with the uh, distiller's grain or it's kind of like a rice wine vinegar type mm -hmm. thing. Uh, so that keeps the eggplant perhaps edible. I don't know. I also went and tried to find people making videos of this, and I could not find any online. So this goes to show, I guess, people just don't have like 100-year-old copper coins lying around to make a um, eggplant dish. Okay, so that was a ton on Chinese holidays and foods. Let's now turn our attention towards the emperor's family affairs. Namely, his children, because a ton were briefly mentioned. There's been a ton of time jumping in this drama, but we now know definitively that it is 1756, or the 20th year of Emperor Tsenlong's reign, which makes him 45 right now. Between 1750 and 1756, he had several children, so I'll list them out here. The 10th prince, Yongyue, was born to Shu Pin in 1751, but he died very young in 1753. And this was briefly mentioned in the drama. The 11th prince was born to Jia Pin, who also rose to the rank of Jia Fei. His name was Yongxing, and I think I mentioned this before, but he was born in 1752 and died at the ripe old age of 1823. So this is the 11th prince. The 12th prince, Yongji, was born in 1752 and was born to Empress Nala, who was at the age of 34 by the time she had her first child, which is this 12th prince. She had a slew of kids all in short order after this 12th prince, but what this reminds me of is the notion that the emperor is very aware of who will have his children. So he wants to make sure that his Empress, whoever she may be, has children so that he can say, okay, if she wants or if he wants to name him as heir or crown prince, that he at least has the option to name a prince from the empress. So Empress Nala then had a daughter, the fifth daughter in 1753, but unfortunately she died in 1755. And then we have the 13th prince, Yongjing who was born in 1756, but unfortunately he died also very young in 1757. And finally, we have noble consort Xin, who also had a sixth princess or sixth daughter who was born in 1755, but she also died pretty young in 1758. So I'm going to stop it here because these are the children that we know of that were born in 1756. There are many that are born afterwards and by other women, but I want to pause 
with the family tree that we have here right now. We are now at a thirteenth prince, Yongjing. I'm now going to turn my attention briefly to some historical matters because we get snippets of the events of Huo Dun and, of course, Fu Hang's return. In episode 48 and 49, we discussed at length about the revolt of the Altai Shar Kojas or Da Xiao He Zhuo Zhi Luan. This occurred in 1757. As a reminder, two Altai Shar nobles, the Koja brothers Borhan Aldin and Huaja Ijahan, led a revolt against the Qing Dynasty in the southern part of modern-day Xinjiang. The events of Huo Dun, which is the two combined, the two names combined, which is this revolt, are finally tying to the events in the Imperial Harem. So we are right now around 1756, 1757. I feel like timeline-wise, we've been in this vague 1750s timeline forever. We've been jumping around because, like, we talked about this revolt way back in episode 48, and then when I first watched this, I was like, and then there was like a banishment for three years for Yingwu. Like, are we in the 1760s right now? But okay, now we you know rein this back in. We're right back in 1756. Fu Hong also was not really involved in the front lines, particularly for this campaign. So it was not like he was gone for years on end. One more thing: Fu Hong's dad dies all the way back in 1723. So this whole line of Fu Hong missing his dad's funeral is not remotely correct. So the last thing we want to talk about is the important name Chen Bi. This is the name, as we see in the drama,、uh, for this new mysterious woman. Chen Bi comes from Song Dynasty's Fan Zhongyan's Yueyang Luoji, or a prose which we've actually talked about in this podcast during our discussion of the story of Minglan. This prose was written in 1046, like I said, in the Song Dynasty. The lines that are recited or、uh, written by Yingluo and recited by Mingyu in this episode are "Changyan Yi Kong, Hao Yue Tian Li, Fu Guang Yue Jin, Jinying Chen Bi, Yu Ge Hu Da, Ci Le He Ji." Here's my translation: There are times when the fog disappears and the bright moonlight can be seen for a thousand miles. The shimmering light flashed with golden hues. The calming reflection of the moon looked like a jade that sunk in the water. The fisherman's song that can be heard answering each other: "This happiness cannot be limited." Chen Bi directly translates into jade that has sunken into the water. But this name was given to her by the emperor to praise her for her similarity to this jade. In the water that is pure, beautiful, and unblemished, that is extremely high praise. The thing is, I do want to highlight also another connection to empresses in the palace. The empress dowager in that drama was called Wu Ya Chen Bi, the same Chen Bi that we have in this drama. For this drama, I kept on being like, "Oh, her name is Wu Ya Chen Bi," and I was like, "Nope, I'm getting the dramas mixed up." We will see in episode fifty-nine just how beautiful this Chen Bi is, and I'm really excited for that. I personally really like the decision by the screenwriter and director to not show this mysterious woman in this episode because I feel like we're like, who is this woman in which both Fu Hong and the Empress herself 
deem as a worthy opponent. So much so that she's willing, the Empress at least, is willing to set aside her past um, qualms against Ying Luo to kind of come together to fight a common enemy. And that is it for today's podcast episode. A friendly reminder that if you are looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas and you are in the U.S., please head on over to our sponsor, Jubao TV. That is J-U-B-A-O TV. It is a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch with English subtitles. They just launched on Plex and you can stream this selection on their website or else on TV. Once again, all of it is free. Thanks again so much for listening. We will catch you all in the next podcast episode.